0: Okay, so welcome back to uh, Sunday school class. Um, so I'll start with this. Many of you might be familiar with Martin Luther. How many of you are familiar with Martin Luther? The great reformer, you know him? Yeah. Luther was a German monk under the Catholic Church during the early 1500s and is a key figure in the history of Protestantism. His famous moment in church history is the, uh, it was in 1517 when Luther put together a document that spoke against the Catholic Church's corrupted practice of selling indulgences to absolve sin. This document is known as Luther's, who knows, 99. 95 Theses, thank you, <laughs> which contained two central beliefs, that the Bible is the central uh, religious authority, even over the Pope, especially in matters of salvation, and that humans may reach salvation only by their faith and not by their deeds. This sparked the beginning of what we call the Reformation. But before Luther got involved in the controversy against the Catholic Church, he was devoted a life to self-denial. This was a man that was committed to a rigorous kind of living that to the average person would seem extreme or even morbid. Many scholars would judge Martin Luther as insane, And this is why. As a monk, Luther would be one who would fast for days. How many of you have fasted for days? Or hours, actually. How many of you fasted for hours? Okay, Uh, Luther would fast for days. He would indulge himself in really severe forms of self-flagellation. In other words, he would pursue a path of religious discipline that involved a type of beating at one's body. So when it came to self-denial, Luther would go above and beyond the rules of the monastery. He would at times refuse blankets in order to feel the cold on his body. This is when he was sleeping. He would just not take the blankets. Just so that he would feel the cold on his body as a way to suffer. During a visit to Rome, he climbed a staircase on his knees, saying a prayer on each step. His prayer vigils were way longer than everyone else's. Also, Luther was known for having problems with his digestive system, which he later admits that it was in his cell that he did permanent damage to his digestive system due to the way that he would severe, uh, se- severely punish his body. So that, was, that was extreme. Luther wrote this, and I quote, I was a good monk, and I kept, I kept the rule of order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. (laughs) All my brothers in the monastery who knew will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself in vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. That's extreme. Here's another one of Luther's practices that seem insane to many. Luther would visit the confessional on a daily basis. And he would not let a day go by without feeling the need to confess some sin, whether big or small. So he felt it necessary to do it daily, seeking absolution. Now, confession was a regular part of the monastic life. But you wonder, how much trouble can a monk get into in a monastery? Maybe someone coveted uh, their neighbor's sandwich. Were there even sandwiches in the 1950s? I don't know. (laughs) Most monks spent no more than a few minutes in the confession. Luther, on the other hand, would spend hours every day in confession. It's recorded that Luther once spent six hours in confession, and it was about sins that he committed the previous day. Luther was radically abnormal. His guilt was so deep and complex, so much so, that he was disturbed in his emotions and could not function as a regular human being. Luther's understanding of the holiness of God created a frightful insecurity. Now, the question to you is Was Luther insane? Was Luther crazy? Was Luther overreacting? What accounts for Luther's behavior? The truth is that Luther was not insane, and he wasn't crazy. In fact, Luther may have had a superior understanding of the law of God and how the law of God worked. He knew that God by no means whatsoever would lower his own standards to accommodate us because his standards was his character. So on the day when God judges the world, he will not be judging or he would not be grading on a curve. If God graded on a curve, like many religions today believe, actually, he would have to compromise his own holiness. And it was either, so it was either obey God's holy standards and do it right and do it perfect, or fail to obey God's holy standards. No in-between. There's no such thing. And Luther knew this, but at the same time, this was Luther's dilemma. Luther was haunted by the question, How can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? This, in fact, should be the dilemma for everyone in the world, in fact. What is a person to do about the holiness of God? If God counts iniquity, who would prevail? Then, one night, while studying the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit of God revealed to Martin Luther through the words of Scripture, not a new idea, Not a new revelation, maybe to him, but it wasn't new. But God revealed through scripture an old truth that was true for him, but also true for the first century church. True for the apostles, true to the saints of the Old Testament. This truth that he had not seen before. And this truth is found in this verse. Let's give it a second.
1: There
0: you go. Romans 1.16-17 For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. So Imagine what this must have meant for Martin Luther, <clears throat> a man who, was devoted, who has devoted his life to works and self-flagellation. A man who feared the law of the Lord to the point of physical illness and emotional instability. Finally, his eyes were opened to see the good news of the gospel, the righteous, that righteousness is obtained by faith and faith alone. I imagine the heart and mind of Martin Luther like a pot of boiling water on a high temperature covered with a top cover and was at the peak of bursting. And the gospel was like a hand that lifted the top off and released the pressure, cooling it off. This was the experience of Martin Luther. There's a famous Latin phrase that was engraved in the Reformation wall in Geneva, where the Reformation continued greatly with other reformers like John Calvin, who would spread the truth of salvation That's obtained through faith alone, apart from the law, uh, apart from the law. This famous Latin phrase uh, reads post tenebras lux, which translates after darkness, light. The phrase really captures the heart of the liberating power of the gospel and its effect on the church after being in darkness for centuries under false doctrine and dead works of false religion. This is the power of the gospel. The power of God for salvation. Freeing a man from the curse of his constant failing and falling short of the righteousness and holiness of the law of God. Paul in Galatians 3.29. Nope. nope, not there. Give it a second. Oh, it is there. I'm sorry. Paul uh, in Galatians 3.10-11 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel rightly understood was the heart of the Reformation. Luther once said, justification or salvation is the article by which the church stands or falls. And this is true today because it's true to scripture. Today I wanna argue that the gospel must be central to church members, to the church as a whole, if the church wants to remain healthy. In other words, a healthy church member is gospel saturated. And I'm gonna break it down in three points. Point number one. Point number one is we must know what the gospel is. Point number two, we must know what the gospel isn't. And point number three, we must embrace a gospel-saturated life or gospel-saturated living. So let's, uh, let's begin with point number one. We must know what the gospel is. The Bible often describes the gospel in a much wider scope than we often describe it. For example, many of us think, uh, when you think of the gospel, Uh, We often go straight to heaven and hell, decision, pick one. Um, Do you want to go to heaven? If so, believe in Jesus. Do you want to go to hell? Then don't do anything. (laughs) And even though that statement is true, the Bible shows us that that the content within the gospel message contains more than just one quick fork in the road of choosing heaven and hell. Um, For example, the gospel is, according to scripture, the proclamation of God's kingdom. Uh, it's the proclamation of God's kingdom, his king, his chosen people, a redeemed people, and also uh, the, the proclamation of the kingdom also addresses the sinner, those who are outside, those who rebel against the king, uh, king's standards. And we, in, we see in scripture that Jesus and the apostles and the apostles, would proclaim the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom of God. So we'll look at some verses here. Matthew four twenty three. Who wants to read that? Get a volunteer.
2: And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues
0: and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Amen. So there you see again. Uh, when it speaks of the gospel, it speaks of it as the gospel of the kingdom. Here's another verse. Matthew 9, 35. Who wants to read that? Amen. So again, you see, uh, Jesus went through the cities and vil- villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. There's a few other verses. I'll read them. Luke four forty-two through 43 says, And it was day he departed and went into, desol- into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So again, you see the good news of the kingdom of God. Another verse. Luke 9, 1-2 says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Another verse. Uh, Luke 9, 59-60 says, To another he said, <clears throat> Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Last one there. Acts 19, 8. And he entered the synagogue and for the first three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So again, the gospel is also referred to the gospel of the kingdom of God. What was the kingdom of God, and why were they proclaiming the kingdom of God? Well, in short, the kingdom of God can be summarized by the reign of Jesus Christ over heaven and earth. Remember that all authority was given to him. Uh, in In his plan, as he deals with the problem of sin, which we see on the cross, the problem of death, and as he moves man and God in perfect fellowship, restoring all creation to its intended purpose in a newer and more glorious way. This is the kingdom of God. This was all accomplished through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. Now, why is is the kingdom of God a kingdom that is uh, dealing with sin, uh, dealing with death, creating a new people for himself? Uh, What was the problem to begin with? why wasn't the kingdom of God established from day one? Where did it all mess up? Well, in the beginning, God created all things and it was good. Yet man disobeyed and sin entered the world. The Bible says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Oh, so this is where we see Uh, the, the problem coming into the world, death coming into the world, sin coming into the world because of man's rebellion. Someone read Ephesians 2, 1
1: through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There
0: you go. So you see in the first verse that you were dead in the trespasses of sins. Notice how that verse does not say that we were struggling with sin or that we were good but we had a few flaws Notice how it does not say that we were almost close to God, but sometimes distracted with sin. The scripture says that we were dead in our sins and by nature, children of wrath. And if God is holy, we know that he must punish sin. And we know of God's holiness through the law that he gave to Moses and the Israelites so that they and all the world would know and measure sin. And if we were honest, we too would see that we fall short of God's glory. But does God leave mankind in their sin? No, we see that God makes a way for salvation. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Someone wants to read that? But
2: God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast.
0: Amen. Thank you. So again, even in in the first verse, um, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Uh, So being in a position of of being dead in your sins, God intervened. What happened on the cross was applied to you. This wasn't a decision on your behalf. This was something that God did for you. He made you alive, says in verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, And then the the last verse there, I'm sorry, verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. Um, In other words, uh, God, uh, because of your sin, uh, your heart was enslaved to that which was against God. And this was inherited through Adam. You were united with Adam under his headship. But by grace, you've been saved, uh, and God comes in uh, through the Holy Spirit, applies the work of Jesus Christ in your heart, and makes you alive. And again, this, uh, verse 9 says, not a result of works, so that no man or no one may boast. Now, keeping that in mind, with that, let's observe another important part of the gospel, namely the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Um, watch that. The gospel is the miracle that God the Son entered into the world and lived under the law in place of sinners, so that by faith we would receive his righteousness apart from the law. Galatians four, four through five says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, uh, when we think of the gospel as a whole, we, we, we not, we can't detach the gospel from the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, we have, to, we have to see the whole story of what God is doing through Christ. And one of those parts is the life of Jesus Christ. Um, a lot of times when we think of the gospel, we just think of the death of Christ. We think of what he did on the cross. But again, we, we must remember the life of Christ. That Christ lived a perfect life under the law. So the rules that were to be applied by us, since we failed to do it, Christ did it perfectly. And his life is counted on our behalf. So the life of Christ is an important part of the gospel. Another part, which was probably the first thing that you think of, is the death of Christ or the cross of Christ. So the gospel is good news for sinners that God provided a lamb to atone for their sins. The gospel is the brutal death of an innocent and sinless man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, who hung on the cross. As God the Father poured his anger, his wrath, On him as if Jesus were us. So, in other words, Jesus on the cross receiving the anger and wrath of God Himself is taking the wrath and anger that was supposed to be applied to us. The gospel is the death of Christ, which meant that Jesus received what was promised to Adam that if Adam sins, he will surely die. Yet Jesus never sinned, but took upon himself the sins of his elect. So we see Jesus facing death, taking death, receiving death. And he's doing it on our behalf. Here's another verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. In other words, Jesus is treated as the sinner that we are. He's treated as the person who is addicted to pornography, the person who is um, an adulterer. Um, All the sins that uh, we uh, as sinners commit, he is being treated as if he was that person. But how are we being treated? It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now we're being treated as if we live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That's good news. God is looking at us and seeing perfect, holy. He's he's seeing his son in us. Another verse. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So again, all the, all the, that, that record of debt that we accumulated was nailed on the cross when Jesus Christ took it on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 12 through 15 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So again, that obligation that was upon us from the first covenant, from the Old Testament, if you will, when we look at the law of God, God's holy standards, Christ comes in and makes a new covenant with us and says, I'll take the penalty. You believe in me and through faith, Uh, you will receive the righteousness that I've achieved. That's the gospel in the death or in the cross of Christ. There's another aspect of the gospel or another part of the gospel, which is the gospel in the resurrection of Christ. So again, we have the kingdom of God, right, as the gospel. We have the life of Christ as the gospel. The death of Christ on the cross as the gospel There's the resurrection of Christ as the gospel. The gospel is the resurrection of Christ and the reality that if death did not hold him, that meant that he had defeated death, which is good news to those who are united in him. We who are in Christ will also be resurrected. The gospel is Christ's ascension as well to heaven as he is seated now on the right hand of God the Father. So it's the resurrection, but also after being resurrected, his ascension to heaven seated at the right hand. But let's start with the uh, resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is an important part of the gospel, and it is also part of proclaiming the gospel. When we, when we uh, evangelize and when we speak the gospel to other people, uh, let's not forget the resurrection. Uh, let's look at verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. So, would someone like to read that? Now I would remind you,
1: brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also
0: received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So, notice in this passage, when Paul is speaking here, and he's saying, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, okay? When you scroll down, uh, verse 3, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, and this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." So, the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. Let's not forget that. It's not only that he died for your sins. Here's another verse. John 6, 40. Someone read that? This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on his Son and believes in him should have eternal life, that will raise him up on the last day. Amen. So again, this is how it's applied to us. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. In other words, if Christ is risen, and we're one with Christ, we too will rise on the last day. That's good news. I'll go ahead and read that. It might be hard. to It's a lot of words, but 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as, again, raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So in other words, this is essential to the gospel. Uh, We preach the resurrection because if, if, if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is in vain. It has no power. We are even found to be misrepresenting God Because we testified about God that he raised Christ for whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, this is the the resurrection of Christ is part of the work um, that Christ was doing to complete the job of atoning of your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most pitied. Uh, I'll never forget uh, attending funerals um, where the the person who passed away was not a Christian. And the people who spoke on behalf of that person who passed away, they would come with a eulogy, and they would say nice things about the person. And... um, in, in their final analysis of that person's life, they say, this person would have wanted us to live life to the fullest, to enjoy life here to the fullest, um, to be happy and not worry and do things, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the person might have done in their life. But in other words, they emphasize a lot of times on how the person who passed away would have want you to enjoy and to live for the moment. Um, but we see here that if Christ, in Christ, we, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied or to be most pitied. Um, and so the resurrection proves to us that what really counts is afterlife. After the resurrection of Christ, it is important, uh, it is important to remember the ascension of Christ also. So he resurrected, but he also ascended. Uh, Into the heavens, which is recorded in Luke 24, 50 through 51, and also in Acts 1, 9, 11. This is where Jesus, after being resurrected and appearing to many, ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is the ascension important to the gospel? Well, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this position that Christ was placed in after being resurrected and and ascending and being seated at the right hand, this position indicates the beginning of his new work as our high priest. We see that in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. He is now or, or is, and is now, in his new position, uh, the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 9:15. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This is what it means when it says he was seated at the right hand. Therefore, he is the head of the church. We see that in Colossians 1:18. He is also the giver of gifts, spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4:7 through9. And this also means uh, that soon every knee will bow at the name of Jesus, which we see in Philippians 2.10, because of his lordship. So the ascension is uh, an important part of the gospel. The gospel and its demand to respond. So even though the gospel is still good news, regardless of whether we respond or a sinner responds, it's still good news. For the gospel still demands a response. This response is repentance and faith, which means to turn from a lifestyle of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. All of them, the past sins, the present sins, and the future sins. Uh, the gospel as a response we'll see more clearly in Acts 2, 37-38. Would someone like to read that? And that's where 37 begins. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, how do we respond to this gospel presentation that you're giving us? And verse 38 says, and Peter said to them, repent and, and be baptized. In other words, turn from your lifestyle of sin. Baptism means receiving the Holy Spirit and joining the church, joining, uh, becoming disciples of Christ. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Notice the the call to, to, to respond to the gospel. It says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, here's the response or the demand to respond. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there is a call for response. Acts 3:19 says, "Repent, therefore, and turn back uh, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out." Again, that uh, call to respond." Our most famous one is John 3:16 through20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So again, whoever believes in him, this is a call to respond, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not, excuse me, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's another command, here's another uh, uh, implication that there is a response required verse 18 whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because of their works because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed in other words Your rejection may not be, no, I do not want to follow Jesus. You know, you say it verbally. No. Your rejection is simple. It's you don't want to come to the light because you love the deeds, uh, the the wicked deeds and the things of this world. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. He's hiding and suppressing the reality that he needs a savior. So again, the gospel is the good news of the kingdom in which sinners like us can be reconciled with God through faith, in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. That's the the fullness of the gospel. And this unites us with Christ through the Holy Spirit, sealing us until the day when Christ returns and guarantees us a place in his new heaven and earth. The second point, we must know what the gospel isn't. I would ask you, are you able to tell when the gospel is being preached or when you hear or read the gospel? Are you able to tell that that's the gospel or this isn't the gospel? Are you able to tell the difference? That's important. We live in a time where the gospel of Jesus Christ is somehow, I don't know how, but somehow misunderstood as a message of prosperity or good fortune. But the truth, the truth is that the Bible makes no reference of prosperity or good fortune at all regarding this life here in the present for New Testament believers. Many of us have experienced the goodness of God, of course. In so many ways, we've, we're blessed. Even unbelievers do, right? But this is due to the common grace that God has for all creation. But prosperity and good fortune is not promised to anyone definitively. In this life, sin and death is still a current reality and its, result, its results caused by all of us who have contributed to the corruption of the world. All of us have contributed some uh, uh, corruption into this world because of our sin, because of our nature. This includes you and I. But the gospel... The gospel is God's plan to redeem us and save us from the corruption of sin, and most importantly, from the justice of his wrath that we truly deserve. Now, on the other side, the gospel can also be misunderstood as a message of moralism or even strict law-keeping in order to be justified before God. This was Martin Luther's dilemma, like we spoke about in the beginning. We must know that even though God's holy law is still God's holy standards even today, the gospel is that Jesus fulfills the law for us and his righteousness is counted for us. We have been freed from the curse of the law. We see that in Galatians 2, 16 through 21. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that Another quick verse. Galatians three ten through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by what? Faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to live by the law, you must do it perfectly. Verse 13 Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now, this whole thing about uh, Christ fulfilling the law for us. Does that mean that those who are saved are free to live in sin because they have been forgiven and that's it, end the story? No, not at all. 1 Peter 2, 9-12 says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. Notice again, here's command. It almost seems like, okay, wait, the law's coming back. It says, but I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wages war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So even though we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and are justified apart from the works of the law, we're still called to be holy and set apart as God's people. And the law actually is a great tool to see what it means to be holy. That's God's character. That's God's holy standard. And so we're still called to live holy. Ephesians 2.10 would somebody like to read that one? Amen. So again, Christ uh, says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're still called to live holy. We're still called to um, walk in good works. This brings me to my third point, which is we must embrace gospel-saturated living. What does it look like to live in light of the gospel? If we are to be healthy church members, we must allow the central theme of the Bible to be the central theme of our lives, which is the gospel. This is a call for gospel-saturated living. So how do we live a gospel-saturated life? A gospel-saturated life is, in short, uh, both proclaiming the gospel And also applying the gospel. So those are two points. I mean, there's so many implications of the gospel. Um, The gospel can be seen in so many different ways. But I'm going to choose these two points for the sake of time. Uh, uh, Point number one is proclaiming the gospel. And point number two is applying the gospel. So proclaiming the gospel. So again, gospel-saturated living is proclaiming the gospel. Uh, uh, One of the points under proclaiming the gospel is being missional. This means that we ought to follow the model of Christ in the way Christ entered the world to seek and save the lost. This means at times that we are to sit with sinners. I know some of you are like, wait, no, wait, what are you telling us to do? No, this is what Christ did. Sit with sinners and share the good news. Get into discussions with unbelievers. This is what it means to be gospel-saturated. Of course, we are to guard ourselves, not to join in in their sins. That's important. But we follow the model of Christ. Get into discussions with unbelievers. Connect with neighbors or gym members. If you go to a gym, this is one way that you, uh, you can apply uh, gospel-centered living. Moms, getting with other moms. Connecting with family members and getting into discussion about the hope of the gospel. There's a lot of us have family members that are unbelievers. How are you uh, living a gospel-centered life? Are you in, in, uh, engaging with them in conversations and um, discussions about the hope of the gospel? This is what it means to be missional, um, to be gospel-saturated. Verse, uh, this verse here, Luke 19:10 says, "For the Son of Man came to seek." and to save the lost. This is what it means to, uh, to be missional the way that uh, Christ was. Another point, make disciples. The gospel is the good news, and the proper response to the good news of the gospel is a life devoted to following Christ. So gospel-saturated lives are lives that train others on how to live in light of the gospel. So the gospel has affected you, you're living following Christ, this also means being fruitful and multiplying, making disciples. You see that in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Another point is guard the gospel. Never let the message of the gospel be distorted with legalism or even the other extreme licentiousness. Never allow anyone to add or take away from the message of the gospel. This is a charge for pastors, but also a charge to the congregation. In Galatians, and I'll show you the verse now, in Galatians, Paul seem to place this responsibility heavy on the congregation. Let's look at the verse. Notice what Paul is saying here. But even if we, right? He's speaking about himself. He's a proclaimer of the gospel. But Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one I preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say it again. If anyone has preached to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. And it's funny because Paul was the type of person that was all about unity. You'll see through the Pauline letters where he, he emphasizes um, the importance of remaining unified, being at peace with one another, being at peace with one another, loving each other. But there's one area where he says, "No, this is this is where you can divide. If anyone preaches to you another gospel, let him be accursed." And then my final point of gospel-saturated living is to apply the gospel. This means to serve and love others. This act of love on behalf of Christ coming out of heaven to give us his life for us should cause us to react in a similar way towards others. This means that the gospel should shape our relationships. How is your relationship with other people gospel-centered? Are you forgiving? Are you um, patient like Christ was patient with us? Christ was also confrontational, are you confrontational? This means it should shape our relationships, it should shape our marriages. How are our marriages doing? Is it does it reflect Christ in the church, Christ's love for the church? Husbands, are you sacrificial towards your wife? Wives, are you submissive in a godly way towards your husband? This is the gospel. Our businesses Those of you who are in the work field or or, uh, running businesses, whatever the case may be, are you running it in a way that reflects the gospel? And our interaction with uh, unbelievers as well. Are you uh, interacting with unbelievers in a gospel-centered way? Quick verse, Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the God of the universe. humbled himself, came to earth, gave his life over for sinners like us. Are we acting this way towards um, others? This means forgiving and bearing with others. This is a call for Christ's people to be gospel-saturated even when others sin against you, forgiving one another with, the, with gospel-centered humility, understanding that we too were once alienated from God. Colossians three twelve through 15 that says... Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and, beloved, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, what? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And then finally, hope in the gospel. Hope in the gospel. We should listen actively and longingly for the gospel and gospel implications in sermons. Don't turn off your listening when the pastor addresses the non-Christian, with the gospel message. Listen to it afresh. Seek after it. Seek after it so much that you begin to feel impoverished and malnourished if it is missing in the sermon. Let it reaffirm your belief in the truth. Allow it to help you examine yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself in times when you fall into sin. The reason why is because the gospel really is your only hope we should cling to it. So in conclusion, a healthy church member is one who is gospel-saturated. Luther admitted his anger towards God, even while attempting to earn his way to heaven, because his good works never seemed to be good enough. But after his eyes were opened to the gospel, his heart would forever be changed. Luther speaks of his conversion with great awe, as he says, and I quote, Here, referring to when he first saw the gospel, here I felt that I was born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. This is a whole new uh, thing for him. Us as well, let us be saturated with the gospel as we proclaim it and apply it as our only true hope, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Amen? Amen. Any last comments, by the way? Time
2: something this morning as we were coming to church um, I read one of our members um, Spurgeon devotionals Mm. and it was all I read it to Stacy while he was driving and and it just um, rekindled you know our thankfulness to God for our salvation that they wrote about um, and no one can say it like Spurgeon (laughs) (laughs) but he testified to what it is like when one comes to Christ and they've been forgiven. Yeah. And thank you, Pastor Long. That yeah.
0: is Amen. wonderful. Amen. Praise God.
2: Started our day. It's yeah.
0: Day. Yeah, those are helpful. Yeah. yeah. Any other comments? Thank you, well.
1: yeah. thank, you. Thank, you. thank you, Will. Praise God. I was going to say thank you, Will. Well um, said. Last week I was doing Lord's Day 17 in the Heidelberg Catechism with the Pam. Mm-hmm. And each section, like the death, no, the life, death, um, burial, like each section, if there's not uh, an emphasis on either one of them, you can see how the gospel can be taken apart there. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to point, like, it's so important that you do get every single yeah. um, aspect of it. Because if not, and I noticed that's what I see in the televi- tel- the, tel- yeah. the television mm-hmm. evangelist. Mm-hmm. They're usually missing one of those, and it's vital. Like, if you don't get that right, then that person is left to either legalism or licentiousness.
0: Very true, very true, yeah, very true. That's a great point, yeah. Yeah, each part is important. And you know what? There's so much more implications in the gospel. There's so many things that the scripture says even the angels, uh, you know, are still looking into it. And, um, you know, but time... That's a sort to talk about it, but we can forever talk about the gospel. There's so many things in it. It's, it's very deep. Uh, praise God for that. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel, Lord. It is our only hope. Um, it is why we celebrate Christ um, on Sunday and every day, Lord. Um, and we just ask that you would help us to do that today, that we would worship to you, worship you in light of the gospel. It really is our, the only reason why we can worship you and we can be united together. And it's Christ and his work and not ours, um, Lord. So in response to the good news of the gospel, let us look at your law. Let us look at your character and let us serve you and worship you with our deeds as well. Um, but not as a means of justification or being saved, Lord, but as a way to worship you and live. Um, the way that we were truly intended to live, Lord, um, in communing with you. So, Lord, we thank you for this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.